On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Uh, Lord Jesus, we begin by asking that you would send the Holy Spirit to inform us of the truth of Scripture so that we might connect the Scripture to you rightly and that as a result we might understand how Scripture and history in our lives only make sense when you are at the center of those things. And so, God, we do love you, we do trust you, and we ask that we would learn clearly about Jesus today and that you would enable us to have hearts that love him and lives that follow him, and we ask this in his good name. Amen. Uh, Let me set up our time together by giving you a a brief background on the Bible in general, and then we'll get into some specific parts of the Bible in particular. Uh, I'll start by saying that at the time it was written, roughly 25% of your Bible was prophetic in nature, meaning that it foreshadowed, it predicted, it promised in great detail a future event that God would then bring to pass to show that God both knows the future and God is sovereign over the future and God has uh, control ultimately over human history. And many of those promises and prophecies uh, work in such a way that they are the thread that weaves much of our scripture together. Promise and fulfillment are sort of the threads that pull together all the other parts of Scripture. And out of those promises and prophecies, roughly 60 plus of them are about this person called the Messiah uh, that the Jews have been waiting for. And he is the one who will come to take away sin and usher in a new world and, and connect people to God and overcome our problem of sin and death. And we'll look at 25 of those in particular today And uh, they will reveal to us Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as fulfillment of Old Testament promise and prophecy. And this is a very controversial truth, but it was something that was in fact taught by Jesus himself, who was a Jewish rabbi, a teacher of Old Testament scriptures. I'll give you three things that Jesus said that are very important before we launch into Genesis. The first was in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, Rather, I came to fulfill them. So Jesus says the whole Old Testament had certain promises and prophecies that I am here to fulfill. Secondly, Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 37 through 40, a bunch of religious neatniks and bloggers and people who want to argue came to meet with Jesus, and uh, they want to argue with him about Scripture. And he said, uh, you diligently study the Scriptures in John 5, thinking that in them you have eternal life, yet you fail to realize that these Scriptures are all about me. And you don't really understand essentially anything about the Bible, Jesus is saying, unless you read the Bible and connect it to me. Meaning that the Bible makes no sense apart from Jesus. And that you can go to a church or a religion or a cult or a group, and even if they're using the Bible, if they're not primarily connecting everything to Jesus, then the Bible isn't going to make any sense, and it's not a good teaching that you're receiving, because good teaching is all about Jesus, according to Scripture. Third, in Luke 24, Jesus, after he lived, died, and rose, it says, held two amazing Bible studies where he took people through the whole Old Testament. On one occasion, it says the Psalms and the Law, which is the books of Moses and the prophets, and he explained how all of the Old Testament scriptures were about him and how he had come to fulfill them all. 
All of that to say that the Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament shows us how the prophetic promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. And he is the long-awaited Messiah. And we'll look at 25 of these amazing promises that happened hundreds, sometimes more than a thousand years before Jesus was even born. The first of which is uh, listed in your notes as uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And here the promise is given that Jesus would be born as a man, as a male, so that automatically gets us down to half of the human race, and that he would have a mother just like the rest of us, uh, except with a distinct feature that we'll notice from Isaiah in a minute. Uh, And here is the context that God made us male and female, everything was wonderful, glorious, and good. Satan rebelled against God and sin came and tempted our first parents. They rebelled against God and sinned. The result is that they are now separated from God and doomed for death. And instead of just leaving them there, God in his great kindness comes to Adam and Eve and he speaks to them in Genesis 3.15, something that the theologians call the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. And he promises that Jesus is coming as a male, born of a female, to defeat Satan and to fix uh, the sin problem that we all suffer from. It says it this way, 1400 years, Moses says, before the birth of Jesus, it is promised, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or separation, division, hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring or seed or descendant and hers. He, meaning Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. It said that Jesus will come as a male born of a female, that he'll have a great conflict with Satan, that Satan will injure him, but ultimately he will conquer and crush Satan. It moves on then, Genesis does, to talk about a man named Abram or Abraham as his name was changed to and how Jesus would come through his family line and that he would come through Abraham and Abraham's son Isaac and Abraham's son uh, grandson uh, Jacob and his great-grandson Judah. I'll start in Genesis 12, 3. God says to Abraham, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the the covenant, the promise, the blessing of Jesus is promised to come through the family line of this man, Abraham. So now we're narrowing it down, looking for Jesus to come through a particular family. Well, Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And then God says in Genesis 17, 19, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son to call him Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him. So There will be two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, but God says Jesus is coming through Isaac, not through Ishmael. Then Isaac is born as a miracle because Abraham and his wife were beyond childbearing years and barren, and God still gave them this son, Isaac. His name means laughter because God always gets the last laugh in these deals. That's the theological point. God's got a sense of humor. And then Isaac as well has sons, and he has sons, Jacob and Esau, and we're told in Numbers twenty four seventeen, I see him, but not now, meaning Jesus is coming, but it's going to be a while. I behold him, but not near. It's going to be quite some time. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. And the scepter is the accoutrement of kings. That's meaning Jesus is a king, and he will come from uh, Isaac's son, Jacob, but not his son, Esau. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob, and then he has 12 sons, And God chooses one of those sons to again be the next line of the generation through which Jesus would come, that being the son Judah. Genesis 49.10, the scepter, the accoutrement of the king, Jesus here is depicted as king, will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. 
It says, Jesus will come as a male, born of a female. He will come from the family of Abraham, but he'll come from Isaac, not Ishmael. Uh, He'll come from Jacob, not Esau. And he'll come from Judah, not of any of his other 11 brothers. So now we're really narrowing down the coming of Jesus and we're getting a clear picture of the family he will come from and descend from. This is clearly laid out in Matthew 1 as being fulfilled as Jesus came specifically through this family line. Furthermore, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, my third prophecy I'll share with you, is we're told more specific details about Jesus' mother, namely that she would be a virgin. So at this point, we're really whittling the list of potential messiahs down, right? The virgin gives birth to a baby. Uh, Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and you're to call him Emmanuel, which means what? God is with us. Was that fulfilled in Jesus? Yeah, when he was born, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. We even sing that Christmas song. So it has to be true. Uh, And what what we know as well is that Jesus' mother, Mary, was a virgin in fulfillment to this promise, conceived by a miracle, gave birth to Jesus, who is God with us, Emmanuel. Now, some commentators... Uh, will say that the Hebrew word here does not mean virgin. It means young, devout, religious, teenage girl, which is a virgin, right? I mean, uh, I, I mean, it is a virgin, but it's like, oh, that's not a virgin. That's a devout 13-year-old girl. Well, this is before the day of teenage girls in clear heels. I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is before that, uh, This is in the day when a young woman was a virgin, and I am the father of a young woman who is a virgin. If you came into my house and I said, this is my virgin daughter, I said, she's not a virgin, she's just a teenager. Uh, She's a virgin, (laughs) and she will be for a long time. Uh, (laughs) Or I will be doing prison ministry from the inside, right? uh, That's how it works. you know, if you go to a devout Muslim or Jewish or Christian home, any sort of devout religious home, the 13-year-old daughter is a virgin. That's the way it works. So uh, that was prophesied about his mother, Mary, and she fulfilled that prophecy. We'll deal with her again in a few weeks. Not only that, regarding Jesus' birth, we're told exactly where he would be born, namely the town of Bethlehem. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, my fourth prophecy, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Micah declares this. But you, Bethlehem, that's the town, Ephrathah, that's the area, though you are small among the clans of Judah, your uh, dumpy rural hick town in the Hebrew, it's Enumclaw, uh, you, uh, uh, though you're Enumclaw-esque, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, the king of kings, whose origins are from old, from ancient times, or from eternity. So the eternal God is coming into human history and he'll be born in the dumpy rural hick town of Bethlehem. Now, many of you know the story, but was Jesus' family from Bethlehem? Is that where they lived? Not at all. Not at all. But what happened was because God rules over human history, the king decided we need to take a census of all the taxpayers, right? I mean, the government going after taxes is biblical. It's been going on since the days of Jesus. And they decide, well, we might not be getting all the tax dollars we could. We need everybody to register, make sure we got everybody on the tax rolls, make sure we're getting as much money as we can. So to register for tax purposes, everybody had to go to their hometown or their family of origin. Well, Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph, was from the tribe and the family of David. Their hometown was Bethlehem, so they went to Bethlehem. At just the time that Mary was ready to give birth to Jesus, they arrived there, 
for the census. And lo and behold, just as Micah prophesied, Jesus was born in the town of Bethlehem. I've heard some people say, well, Jesus knew the prophecies and he set up his life so as to give the impression that he was the Messiah. Say, how did he fake the destination of his birth? I mean, my wife has given birth to five kids and none of them have picked the hospital, let alone the city. You know, it's not like a note comes out, like, take me to Bethlehem. You know, it's like, I don't know. So anyways, you know, ridiculous. Uh, Fifth prophecy about Jesus' life. I probably shouldn't have said that. Uh, Fifth (laughs) prophecy about Jesus' life uh, was that while he was alive on the earth, he would not commit any sin. Uh, We're told this by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born in Isaiah 53, 9. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, meaning he did nothing wrong in word or deed. He was sinless. He was perfect. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. No one else is perfect but Jesus. And actually, there's a short list of people who have ever, like Jesus, declared to be themselves without sin and perfect. But Jesus said uh, rhetorically when he was alive on the earth, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? The answer is no. Hebrews 4 says he was tempted, but he never did sin. So we're waiting for a man born of a woman from the family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah whose mother would be a virgin, who would be born in Bethlehem and never commit any sin. I mean, we're getting the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, as it were, and as we put them together, we're coming into a clearer and clearer picture of the coming of Jesus long before he actually arrived. The sixth prophecy is that 700 years before his birth, the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11.1 said that Jesus would spend some time living as a refugee in the nation of Egypt. It says in Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem and grew up in Nazareth, but he spent some time in Egypt because there was a persecution, a genocide that broke out against young boys by a, a godless and fearful king who was afraid that one of these boys would rise up and take his kingdom. So to avoid the slaughter, Jesus' mother and father took him to Egypt for a season where he lived as a young boy in fulfillment of the promise of Hosea 11.1. Not only that, we're told that Jesus would go to the temple in Malachi. And this is an amazing prophecy because for those of you who know Jewish history, when was the temple destroyed? 70 AD. So now we get a deadline. Right, whoever Messiah is, he had to come before 70 AD because the promise is that he would go to the temple, but the temple was destroyed in 70 AD and there has not been a temple for almost 2,000 years. I tell my Jewish friends, they say, we're waiting for the Messiah. I say, well, Malachi says he will come to the temple. You have no temple. The temple's been destroyed. Messiah already came. His name is Jesus. Malachi says, 400 years before the birth of Jesus in Malachi 3.1, see, I will send my messenger. That's the forerunner, we'll deal with him momentarily, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord, the Lord who? The Lord Jesus, you are seeking, will come to his temple. The Lord will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, that's the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks about, that uh, that God will take away our sin and give us a new heart and give us a new life. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. Did Jesus go to the temple? Yes. A few occasions he went there during his life. Yeah, he did. Say, well, how do we know Jesus is Messiah? Well, one of the ways we know is Messiah had to come before 70 AD. 
and I've heard some of my Jewish friends, and, and, and I love them, and we have these discussions respectfully, but I've had some of my Jewish friends say, well, we will rebuild the temple and Messiah will come to the new temple. I say, really? Because the Jews, the Muslims, the Christians, the Baha'is, along with groups like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses all say that that's their plot of land. And they all say that they get to build their religious worship center there. And if you think they'll all agree, you have more faith than it takes to be a Christian. Uh, I cannot see the Jews and the Muslims sitting down and saying, let's, let's build a church together. I mean, you know, I don't know if you watch the news. Things in the Middle East don't look like they're coming together for a joint worship service anytime soon. Uh, and it's been that way since Genesis. So I'm assuming that trajectory will continue. There won't be another temple uh, for the Messiah to come to because the Messiah has already come and he came to the temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. Additionally, we're told that John the baptizer would come to prepare the way for Jesus, making sure that no one missed the coming of Jesus. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 is written 700 years before Jesus was born. It says, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for God. Who was that? John the baptizer, Jesus' freaky, weird homeschool cousin. It's a true story, actually. Uh, the kid grew up in the woods, uh, and he wore what? Camel's hair clothes. He was dressed like a little Jedi knight or something. And uh, what was his steady diet? Bugs and honey, right? Any kid who grows up wearing animal fur in the woods, homeschooled, eating bugs and sugar, he's beyond arty. He's full peculiar. Uh, and that was Jesus' cousin, right? And uh, he came preaching, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, the Lord is coming, the Lord is coming, prepare your hearts. And he fulfilled the promises of both Malachi and Isaiah that Jesus was coming. And uh, I know many of you aren't parents. When you do become one, I would just forewarn you that be careful in reading these stories to your children. It's amazing the application that they make. My two sons, for example, I read them this story this summer and they loved it because here's a boy who pees outside and eats bugs. Uh, so all of a sudden they have license for all of their dreams. And, uh, and that's how they actually interpreted John the baptizer. And so one day I hear my daughter's running in the house. I have three boys, two girls, and the two girls are freaking out, screaming, oh my gosh, dad, you got to come outside. And so I'm thinking somebody's dying. I go out there. The boys have taken honey and they have gathered bugs and they have wrapped the bugs in the honey and they're eating it in front of the girls to gross them out. And it worked exceedingly well. Uh, I say, what are you boys doing? And they're like, uh, it's in the Bible, dad. John the baptizer did it and it's biblical. You can't discipline us. I was like, true, maybe I get a profit out of this deal. I don't know. That seems to be the, the prophetic diet. So I let them eat and they still eat bugs and honey and pee in the yard. But anyways, uh, that was Jesus' freaky homeschool cousin, John. And I see him with an afro and a, like a cricket leg in his tooth. I just see him kind of that way. But uh, not only that, it says that Jesus during his life would perform a whole lot of miracles. Uh, 700 years before he was born, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. They'll say, you'll know it's Jesus because he'll heal people. Deaf people will hear, mute people will speak, lame people will walk, blind people will see. Did Jesus do those things? It's great. He did those things. He, he did miracles. And, and, and I would tell you this, that Jesus is alive and well today, and we pray for people, and we have seen God heal them. I had a cool story this morning of Jesus healing an elderly woman in her 80s who's had years of chronic leg and knee pain. She loves the Lord. She's cute as can be. And uh, she said, 
Pastor Mark, I've been in so much pain and I've been using my pain medication, but it's not working. And I finally just prayed earnestly to God and I believe he healed me. And I haven't had pain for this amount of time and I'm not taking my pills and I can walk and I'm, I'm able to get around my house and go for walks and Jesus has healed me. So we believe that about Jesus, that he can heal people, that he used to heal people when he was alive on the earth. And just because he's alive in heaven today doesn't mean he can't heal. And so we do pray to him for such things. And this promise was fulfilled in the life and the ministry of healing that Jesus had. It also says more details about Jesus' life, pieces for the puzzle, that he would come riding into town on a donkey like a triumphant king coming in to be welcomed and celebrated to the city of Jerusalem. 500 years before he was born, Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king, that's Jesus, comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Did that happen in Jesus' life? Did he ride into Jerusalem like a triumphal king on the back of a young donkey, celebrated by people who came out to cheer his entry? Absolutely. Absolutely. Scripture says that's exactly what happens. That's the historical fact. Also, in addition to these wonderful things about Jesus' life, like his miracles and uh, those who received him and celebrated him, there are also prophecies made about Jesus, his suffering, his hardship, his pain, his tears, and his strife. Uh, one of those is uh, given a thousand years before he was even born in Psalm 41.9. He says, even my close friend whom I trusted, who I shared my bread with, has lifted up his heel against me. And in that culture, to lift up your heel against someone was to sort of declare war on them, to, 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 to be hostile toward them, to intend to do them harm and evil. What he says is, I will be betrayed by a close friend, one I have broken bread with. He will be the one who betrays me. Who was that in the life of Jesus? That's Judas Iscariot. A close friend who for three years broke bread with Jesus and broke bread with him at the Last Supper before he determined in his heart that he would participate in the betrayal and the murder of Jesus. And Jesus was close friends. Three years he ate and lived and traveled and loved and had a friendship with Judas. And Judas was the close friend who betrayed him in fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 41, 9. Tenth prophecy is that not only would Jesus be betrayed by a close friend, but that he would be betrayed for the payment price of 30 pieces of silver. And this is amazing. The scripture actually names the number of coins that the betrayer Judas would be paid for handing over Jesus to the authorities. 500 years prior to his birth, Zechariah 11, 12 and 13 says, they paid me 30 pieces of silver and the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, which is a portion of the temple that again was destroyed in 70 AD. So that's a second confirmation of the historical deadline. The handsome price at which they priced me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord. That's the temple to the potter. The promise was made. I will be betrayed by a close friend whom I have broken bread with. And 500 years before that occurred, Zacharias says, yes, indeed, he will be paid 30 pieces of silver and Judas Iscariot was likewise paid 30 pieces of silver. And in disgust, he threw that money into the temple before 70 AD, just as was promised by Zechariah. Again, these are amazingly uh, carefully given details that God is revealing to us here. 
God wants us to be so clear that Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our God. Jesus is our Messiah. He's giving us very clear details. He goes on furthermore to say that Jesus would be abused in Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born. We are told in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me. Was Jesus' back beaten? Yes, beyond recognition. If you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, you saw a real good portrayal of what happened to Jesus and how his back was just traumatized and he was flogged to the point of near death. It goes on to say, not only did I offer my back to those who beat me, I also offered my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard, which in that culture was a means by which of robbing a man of his dignity and and disgracing him and humiliating him. Was that done to Jesus? Yes, sadly it was. And I did not hide my face, it says, from mocking and spitting. Was Jesus mocked? Yes, with things like hail, hail, king of the Jews. Spit upon, yes. History records that yes, indeed, Jesus was spit upon. Jesus, it was promised, would be physically, emotionally, spiritually, verbally abused. And he was in fulfillment to the promise given by Isaiah 700 years before he was even born. In clarification of that, it also tells us that prior to his death that they would strip Jesus and they would split his clothes except for the one seamless garment, the equivalent to our, you know, a good coat. It was the one piece of clothing that he had that had some apparent value. So rather than dividing it up among those who were participating in his murder, they literally rolled the dice or cast lots for that. And that was promised in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, a thousand years before his birth. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. That absolutely was fulfilled as the crucifixion of Jesus was in sight. That they stripped him naked, that they split his garments, and that they rolled the dice for the one piece of clothing that had some value. Uh, Furthermore, we are told that Jesus would be hated and rejected. And I know some of you really love and receive Jesus, but some really hate and reject him. It says in uh, Isaiah 53, 3, 700 years before his birth, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. It was promised that people would hate Jesus, that they would reject Jesus, that they would despise Jesus, that they would oppose Jesus, and they did. And that tragic prophecy was fulfilled in very painstaking detail as recorded by the New Testament record. But not only is that promised, it is also promised by Isaiah that Jesus would not defend himself that he wouldn't answer all his critics, that he wouldn't write a tome listing all the reasons for his vindication. Rather, he proceeded forward, serving God faithfully on his mission to die and rise, to save sinners like me. And Jesus was not dissuaded from his mission by all of the criticism and the controversy and the opposition and all of the lies and the false witnesses and the false trials and the the bad reports. He, he, He didn't allow that to take him off of his mission. And that was promised in Isaiah 53, 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. He was gracious and kind, and he even loved his enemies. He was led like a lamb to slaughter, and as a sheep is uh, before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And that was absolutely fulfilled in Jesus. 
He was meek and gentle and humble and kind and loving and forgiving, even to his most ardent opponents and critics, even in their hour of most vile antagonism. And he stands as an example for us all. And then we are told that Scripture is clear that Jesus Christ would be crucified. And this was promised in the Psalms a thousand years before Jesus was born. What makes this prophecy even more remarkable is that this crucifixion is prophesied before crucifixion exists. It wasn't, I think, until the Persians invented crucifixion a few hundred years later that crucifixion even existed. Yet it was promised for Jesus a thousand years before his birth and a few hundred years before crucifixion was invented. It says it this way in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen: Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. That's what it says. Was that fulfilled in Jesus? Absolutely. When they went to crucify him, they took five to seven inch spikes and drove them through what? His hands and his feet. And Jesus was crucified through his hands and his feet. I mean, not only was crucifixion prophesied, where they would put the nails was foretold so that we would all have certainty that this Bible we read is about Jesus. Additionally, we are told that when he would be crucified through the hands and the feet, that he would be crucified with sinners. Uh, We are told this 700 years prior in Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured his life out into death. He would be murdered and was numbered with the transgressors, with the sinners. Was that fulfilled in the life of Jesus? Was Jesus put to death with sinners? One at his right, one at his left. In fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, that not only would he be put to death I mean, you you look at the details leading up to the death of Jesus. Betrayed by a close friend who ate meals with him for 30 pieces of silver that would be thrown into the temple that only existed until 70 AD. Falsely accused, despised, hated, beard plucked out, uh, people saying atrocious things, mocked, spit upon, crucified through the hands and the feet with thieves who were guilty and deserved to die. I mean, this is unbelievable, painfully accurate, successive details about how Jesus would live and die. And if that were not enough, we are also told in Scripture, well in advance, that none of his bones would be broken in his death. Uh, Moses says this 1,400 years before the birth of Jesus. And furthermore, the psalmist says this 1,000 years before the death of Jesus. I'll read the first one by Moses in Exodus 12, 6, we are told there do not break any of the bones. Any of what bones? What animal? A lamb. What is the context here? Passover. The great Jewish celebration of what? Of the time when they were slaves in bondage in Egypt and everyone had sinned against God as we all have and and the wrath of God and the justice of God and the judgment of God was coming upon them and he picked a day at which he was going to pour out his wrath and he was going to literally take lives and God said there will be one way that I will pass over you and not bring death to your household that is if you take a lamb without spot or blemish showing forth the sinless life of Jesus 
And if you make that animal your substitute and you slaughter it for your sins and its blood is shed in your place and you take that blood and you put it over the entryway of your home, then I will know that you have faith in Jesus who is coming to shed his blood, to take away your sin. And God says, I will literally pass over you and death will not come to your home. And this is foreshadowing of Jesus. When Jesus shows up, John the baptizer says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First Corinthians five says that Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb has been slain. The whole point of Passover was to show us that Jesus Christ was coming to be our substitute, that though he was innocent and he did not deserve death, that he would take our place and he would shed his blood for our sins so that the wrath of God would pass over us. And in the details of Passover, it was said, as I read to you from Exodus 12, that none of the bones of the animal were to be broken because none of Jesus' bones were to be broken either. And we don't sacrifice animals anymore because Hebrews says that Jesus is the sacrifice for all sin and Jesus sacrificed once for all. And so we don't have sacrifices, we just have Jesus. And the reason why Jesus' bones were not broken is because crucifixion was excruciatingly slow death by asphyxiation. There was a recent CSI episode in which Grissom actually explained crucifixion fairly accurately. So I don't know what kind of theologian Grissom is, but he he got this one right. Uh, There was someone who had been crucified on the television show, uh, part of the plot line, and he said that crucifixion leads to death by asphyxiation, which is accurate because as your body slumps on the cross, you can't open up your lungs to get enough air to breathe and eventually you die by asphyxiation. Well, because people were nailed through their feet as well, sometimes they would push themselves up to get air into their lungs. And this could go on for days and they would extend their life. But if the executioner got tired of waiting, they would come and break their legs so that then they couldn't push themselves up and get any more air in their lungs. And Jesus had such a brutal flogging and beating and he was so very near death that he died fairly quickly on the cross. And when the executioner came to investigate his body... He declared him to be dead. To assure us of that, he ran a spear through his side, puncturing his heart sack so that water and blood flowed out. But none of Jesus' bones were broken in fulfillment of all that was shown forth in the Jewish Passover celebration of the breaking of no bones. This was also promised in Psalm 3420. A thousand years before Jesus, we are told, he protects all of his bones, not one of them will be broken. Furthermore, we are told that Jesus Christ would be forsaken by God the Father. In Psalm 22, one, a thousand years before Jesus was born, we hear this cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who said that a thousand years later? Jesus, when did he say that? On the cross. Why would he say that? Well, Jesus Christ took upon himself sin, including my sin, And as a result, God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And there was physical and spiritual death, which is the penalty for sin. And it was paid by Jesus, my substitute, in my place for my sins. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin. That would be my sin 
so that in him we, including me, might become the righteousness of God. That Jesus took my condemnation for his salvation. He took my sin for his sinless perfection. He took my death for his life. He took my separation from God for his intimate relationship with God the Father. And in that moment that Jesus took upon himself my sin and substituted himself in my place, God the Father turned his back on God the Son, and Jesus was forsaken as I should have been, but by God's grace through Jesus am not. And that's why Jesus cried from Psalm 22.1 that he was fulfilling that prophecy, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, uh, the details are astonishing that a woman would give birth to a son who came from the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, that the mother would be a virgin, that she would give birth to the son in Bethlehem, that as a boy he would be taken to Egypt, that he would grow up without committing any sin, that he would go to the temple before 70 AD, that later in life a, a friend of his who saw him perform the miracles that were prophesied and had broken bread with him on many occasions would betray him for 30 pieces of silver which would be thrown in disgust into the temple that his beard would be plucked out, that false accusations would be made, that liars would run him through a series of false trials and he would not defend himself. He would maintain his dignity and he would continue forth with his mission, that his back would be bloodied, that his beard would be plucked, that his reputation would be attacked, that he would be crucified through his hands and his feet between two thieves, that garments that he wore and had been stripped of would be taken from him and distributed, one piece of which would be won by someone in a dice game, and that none of his bones would be broken, but that on the cross he would be forsaken by God the Father. We're also told that Jesus would die, that ultimately his mission was to die. Isaiah says, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he was cut off from the land of the living and he would die. He would die. Not only would he die, but he would be buried with the rich. That's what Isaiah goes on to say in Isaiah 53, 9, the next verse. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was buried in a cemetery with all the sinners, which he was not, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus would die from his crucifixion and he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. Was Jesus a rich guy? I don't care what the televangelist who has the wife with big hair that looks like she lost a paintball gun war says, right? That's a good line. Snuck it up on you. Uh, that, that Jesus wasn't a rich guy. He was not a rich guy. He was poor. He was homeless. The Bible says he didn't have any word even lay aside. Jesus was a homeless guy. Right? He was poor. When it came time for him, for example, to pay his taxes, what did he do? Told his guys, go fishing. Maybe there's money in a fish. That's a broke guy right there. <laughs> right? If you go, I'm broke. I hope there's money in the fish. You have officially reached the end of your income stream and you are now at a desperate place for money when you're looking in fish for coins. I mean, that, that's, really, that's really the bottom of income. He was broke. How, did, how in the world could Jesus be buried in a rich man's tomb? Was he? He was. When Jesus died, they had nowhere to bury him. He didn't have a tomb. He was broke. One of the quiet, more secret disciples, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy and affluent man, stepped forward and said, Jesus needs a decent place to be buried. I will give him my tomb. 
And so he gave Jesus his burial plot, which was the tomb of a rich man, and it was among the other rich, and Jesus' body was laid in that tomb. That's how he was buried with the rich in his death, in fulfillment to the promise of Isaiah given 700 years prior. Again, some of my friends have said, well, Jesus set up his life so that all the things met the prophecy. You don't pick your mom, your place of birth, and after you die, you don't have a big say in where they put you. Uh, I mean, these are things before he was born and after he died that were promised in Scripture showing that not only is it all true, but it's beyond a shadow of a doubt factual that these were not uh, situations manufactured by Jesus to fool us. And if that weren't enough, the Bible also promised 700 years before the birth of Jesus in Isaiah and 1,000 years in Psalms that after dying, he would resurrect Psalm 1610, thousand years prior, you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your holy one, and there's only one who's really holy, that's Jesus, see decay. I'll go to the grave, but you're not going to leave me there. My body's not going to just become mulch in the ground. I'm not going to be there. You will bring me back. Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, 700 years before Jesus says, though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, which is death, that's language of death, He will see his offspring. He'll come back from death. Prolong his days. He'll live after his death. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, after he dies, it says he'll see the light of life. and He'll be satisfied because his work will be finished and sin will be forgiven. And he will have destroyed Satan and sin and death. And that's Jesus. Did Jesus rise from death? Yes, he did. And it was seen by multitudes of people, upwards of 500 at a time. His mothers, his brothers saw it. His friends, his enemies saw it. Crowds saw it. Men and women saw it. Young and old saw it. It was a fact. And he he maintained his witness of being alive for 40 days, even with the doubters like Thomas. Touch my scars. I was dead. Now I'm alive. That happened on a Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday. That's why Jews stopped worshiping on Saturday and started worshiping on Sunday because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. And today, a few billion people on earth worship Jesus Christ as God because of his resurrection from death and his fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecy. And it's just Jesus. And he rose from death. And again, you have to confess, even if you're not a Christian, we've really whittled down the list. You got to find a guy whose mom was a virgin that was born in Bethlehem before 70 AD, died and is still alive. And this is a very short list. Even if you went to public school, you go, yeah, that's a short list right there. I went to public school and I think it's a short, I mean, it's a short list. I've heard other people say, well, maybe it was somebody else. Who? Give me one other dude with this resume. You know, there is no one else. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. And not only that, it then tells us that he would ascend into heaven and be seated at the right hand of God. So it completes the whole full circle ministry of Jesus from in heaven to the earth, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, back into heaven at the right hand of the Father. Both a thousand years prior to Jesus' birth are given. Psalm 68, 18, when you ascended on high, you led captives in your train. 
God, when you returned to heaven, Lord Jesus, you took those who in the Old Testament were waiting for you to come and die and rise. You took them with you. You opened up heaven. This verse is quoted in Ephesians talking about how Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and those who loved Jesus in the Old Testament were awaiting his coming as their Messiah to die and rise and take away their sin. That their souls, when Jesus ascended into heaven, they went with Jesus. And so today, if we die, And we know Jesus, the Bible says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we get to ascend with and like Jesus, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. My last verse, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. God says to God. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity is inferred here. There is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And here, God the Father says to God the Son. Sit at my right hand, the seat of prominence and preeminence and power and respect and adoration and joy until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Where is Jesus today? In heaven at the right hand of the Father as God, being worshiped by the angels and those Christians who have already gone before us and those Christians in the Old Testament whose faith was in the coming of Jesus, anticipating his sinless life, his substitutionary death, his bodily resurrection from death. And again, we're talking about Jesus. Here's a few things that in summary, I just desperately need you to know. The first is that this ultimately must shape our view of Scripture. Scripture is inspired of God. This is God's information. There is no way that this many authors over this many uh, periods of history and this distance of years from the historical fulfillment could have possibly predicted guaranteed, even come close to prophesying these excruciatingly accurate and detailed portraits of the coming of Jesus. Only God knows the future. Only God controls the future. And only God can reveal this kind of information about the future and God has in Scripture. The whole point of Scripture is Jesus and so for us, as we read scripture, it is, it is only about Jesus. It is always about Jesus. It is solely about Jesus. It is exclusively about Jesus. It is clearly and emphatically and repeatedly and wholeheartedly about Jesus. That's what it's about. And so as we read scripture, we love scripture because it's about Jesus and it's from God and he's our Messiah and we really need one individually and nationally and globally, there's a need for a savior and and he is revealed in scripture as none other than Jesus Christ alone. And that means that Jesus is the centerpiece of scripture. And I must ask you, is he the centerpiece of your life? Is Jesus your Messiah? Do you know Jesus? Do you believe the promises of scripture? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the one that truly we've all been longing for? the one to deal with our sin and our death and our life and our world and to bring the kingdom of God. If so, you're a Christian. If not, you're not a Christian. And that, that must, that must change. It's all about Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you are separated from God. And we want you to be reconciled to God through Jesus. And Jesus is alive and well. He knows your heart and he knows your thoughts and he knows your intent. And even today, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'll tell you the most wonderful thing in the world and that is that God loves you. God has done everything to take away your sin. God has done everything to reconcile you to himself. 
And it's all been accomplished through Jesus who on the cross said, it is what? Finished, took care of everything. And now we just simply trust in the person and work of Jesus. And because Jesus is alive and well today, he knows your thoughts and your words and your intent and you can tell him even quietly in your seat, Jesus, I am a sinner, you are God. Make me a Christian. And he will. You can begin reading your Bible and learning about Jesus and loving Jesus with God's people and growing in your relationship with Jesus. As a guy who didn't know Jesus for the first 19 years of his life, more than half of his existence, I could tell you this is the most wonderful, life-altering invitation you will ever receive, and that is to come to know Jesus. Furthermore, we sit here today in many ways in the same position as those who heard the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. They were told, Jesus is coming, trust and wait. And he came and he lived and he died and he rose and he ascended. And we are here now reading promises of scripture that say he's coming again. Trust and wait. And so we find ourselves essentially in very much the same position as those who were waiting for Jesus in the Old Testament. Reading the Bible, trusting in the promises of God, waiting for the Messiah to come to finish the work at his second coming that he began at his first coming when he takes away all sin, when he lifts the curse, when he destroys all evildoers, when he wipes all the tears from our eyes and everyone is healed and all who love Jesus spend forever with him. And so today we respond to Jesus by praying, by singing, by giving of tithes and offerings, by partaking of communion, which is remembering the body and blood of Jesus. And as we sing in worship, we are joining with the angels and the Christians that have gone before us who presently are gathered around Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father in the position of glory, and they are singing to him with gladness and joy, and our voices participate in that great heavenly choir, and we invite you all to join us in song to Jesus tonight. And that's why we're here. Answer to my question. How did people know Jesus was coming? Answer? They read their Bible. I would just ask you, enjoy reading your Bible. It's all about Jesus. Amen? Amen. All right. You're a little better than the five. They were the decaf crowd. I'll go ahead and pray, right? We'll give tithes and offerings. We'll take communion. We'll sing. We'll celebrate. We'll pray. And we'll honor Jesus, who is our Messiah, as we wait for him to come again and finish the work that he began. So, Lord Jesus, you told us to pray to you, so we're praying to you. You told us to sing to you. We're going to sing to you. You told us to take communion, to remember your body and blood given for our sin, and so we are. We're giving of our tithes and offerings to further the word of your person and work as it goes forth into the world. And Lord Jesus, we confess that you are the hero of Scripture, that you are the Messiah, that you are God who has come on a rescue mission to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for giving us such specific prophecy so far in advance with such clear detail that we just simply could not miss you if we only have eyes that are willing to see. Please send your spirit to give us those eyes. 
And I pray for those who may not be Christians, Lord Jesus, that you would send your spirit to give them faith to believe, hearts to receive, and eyes to see that it is all about you and that they need you. Amen.